Let's give thanks to the Lord now and look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for those young lives that were affected this very weekend, and thank you for our young people who had a part in that and for other others from other groups that were there. And thank you now for your word that will minister to our hearts in areas where we need to be ministered to. My prayer is that we would have changed lives. Your word has the power to do that as your Holy Spirit applies it in our lives. I would pray that there would be those among us who have come in burdened, may leave unburdened, having left that burden with the Lord Jesus who wants to carry that. So we thank you for this and thank you for the person of the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn, if you will, please, in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 14. We'll continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22, and I will begin reading with the word immediately. And you will see that word immediately that will occur again a couple of more times. In fact, one more time when we add uh, what another gospel writer says. As I read Matthew 14, I'm also going to add some remarks that Mark makes in his gospel and John makes in his gospel. Luke does not cover this particular miracle. This is the most extensive treatment of it here in Matthew, but I will add a few thoughts as we go. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Capernaum, John tells us, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Mark says they were making headway painfully. John says the sea became rough and says they had rowed about three or four miles. And then back to Matthew in verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then only Matthew gives us this information about Peter. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. John adds, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Mark adds, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place, Mark tells us, immediately recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. Mark adds, the sick people even on their beds. And implored him, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. 
And just before that, Mark adds, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and Jesus healed all of them. And the miracle at hand is Jesus walking on the water, but that's not all. There were two other miracles that took place at the same time. They don't get as much attention. We will see them as we do go through. I know it's Mother's Day, but please understand this. Only Jesus walks on the water. You understand that, don't you? No matter how precious your mother is. Although my mother used to walk on water, my brother and sister spilled a lot of things in the kitchen. But it wasn't very deep water. This is another demonstration, though, of Jesus' unique power and his supernatural abilities. Even mothers can't walk on water the way Jesus did, right in the middle of a deep lake. The miracle recorded here in Matthew is one more indication. It's one more tangible piece of evidence that of all the people who have ever lived, there is only one who is absolutely unique. No one ever like Jesus. And you know what? He's our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. And so we have Jesus, the one we need when we feel all alone in the storms of life, just like they were caught in the middle of something very, very unpleasant. Many of you are finding yourself there right now or having just come out of it and not knowing some of us headed there very soon. Jesus is the one who can give us what we need when we're afraid of all that's around us. It's his voice, the one we want to hear. He's the one who can be heard over the loud and stormy circumstances of life. And he's the one who says, take heart. The NIV says, take courage. Take heart, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Some of us came in here very much afraid, anxious, concerned over things that we don't need to be because Jesus said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So many of those things that now frighten us as Christians, things that fill our hearts with anxiety, would stop scaring us if we could realize the Lord Jesus is in everything. He is ordering every situation. He's providentially overruling everything realizing that the Bible tells us that not even a sparrow falls to the ground that Jesus is not aware. I have a picture on the screen for those of you that can't see it of a sparrow on the ground. How many of you have seen a sparrow this past week? I should have asked how many of you have not. Um, Most of you have seen a sparrow. Um, Some of you, a very few have not. Uh, there are sparrows all over. How many of you were feeding birds somehow on a bird feeder this week and sparrows came and you were disappointed because they're so common? You don't have to put your hand up. They are very, very common and not one of them falls to the ground without Jesus knowing it. You also realize that when there are some hairs that you pull out when you're brushing your hair, that Jesus knows all the rest of those hairs that are on your head that are left behind. I know for some of you that's not a big deal that the hairs of your head are numbered. But for others, it's a much bigger deal. But that's who Jesus is. I'd like for us to take a look at that person, that Lord Jesus, the one who tells us that it is I. You don't have to be afraid. Take heart. Take courage. 
I'm right here with you. You spent a lifetime being anxious, and you haven't needed to be. What we know about storms in our lives, if we're looking at the first three verses that we just read in Matthew chapter 14, what we know about storms in our lives, I'm going to review this. I'm sure most of you understand these things, but one of the things we know is that storms are inevitable in our lives. We were never promised a rose garden. And do you know what? Even if every one of us were given a rose garden, you know what's all around roses are thorns. It's part of the curse on the planet that there is nothing that is guaranteed that says we're never going to have problems. In fact, the guarantee is that we will have problems. The unfortunate part for some of us is that we think that if we live the best life that we possibly can, that we're going to be immune from any of the trials and the problems that do happen. But according to the Scriptures, nobody gets a pass from those problems. There's no diplomatic immunity. Everybody will go through them. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it or consider it or reckon it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Do you realize that it says when you meet? It doesn't say if you meet. There's no if about it. It is when you meet trials of various kinds. They're going to be there. There's no question about that. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But then he says in the world you will, again, it's not you may have, but you will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says once again, I have overcome the world. What else do we know about storms? We know that stormy conditions are not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure. Over the years, I've had any number of people say to me, and whenever people say it to me, I realize that they're representatives of many other people, but they'll say, I don't know what I did wrong. Why is God doing this to me? And they feel as if somehow they've displeased God, and that's why these stormy conditions are present. And it may, in fact, have nothing to do with God being disappointed with anyone. God could be testing us to strengthen us, to make us better. God, for his glory, could be allowing us to go through circumstances so that he can show us and others his amazing glory in those circumstances and situations. God may be disciplining us, but not necessarily so. But if he does discipline us, it is so that we will get in line and so that we will be what he wants us to be. And that's a good thing. We know that storms may come on us suddenly and unexpectedly. The storms that come on us may not be after an extended weather forecast that gives us seven days notice. Or even the night before in the weather, we may not be told. All of a sudden, bang, in an instant, our lives may change because some trials or troubles may hit us. So we know that these storms may come on us suddenly and expectedly. Here in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, that's the first use of that word, immediately. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. They didn't know they were about to get into the boat. They were there. They were tired, remember? There had been another great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't know what was up, but immediately, it says, Jesus made them get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Capernaum, while he dismissed the crowds. All of a sudden, they would find themselves in a storm 
And they were seasoned veterans. They, they may have realized that this is not the best time for us to be going out onto the water, but Jesus made them do that. We also know that storms are not random nor by accident. Jesus is not surprised by anything that happens to me or you, nor anything that will happen to me or you, or to you and you and I. So we have a situation here where the storm's not random because notice the wording that is here and also in Mark's account, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He gave them a rendezvous with what the Bible tells us here is painful headway, rough seas, beating waves, and formidable winds. Did Jesus know all about that? Certainly he did. Did Jesus tell his dear friends, his disciples, go into the boat and get going, knowing what was going to happen? That's exactly what happened. And that word made, Jesus made them do that, suggests urgency and pressure. Their first inclination may have been not to get into the boat. They only did it because Jesus told them they had to do that. So the one way you can put this, and it doesn't sound real nice, but Jesus deliberately sent them into troubled waters. He deliberately did that. That means they were in the center of God's will. They did exactly what he told them to do. They had done no wrong. And all of a sudden, there they were in the middle of a bad storm. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite writers, writes this about this situation. It's not going to start out good. I'll I'll give you a little warning. It's going to start out in such a way that you're going to say, but why should I ever want to obey if this is what's going to happen? He says, it was obedience that made them so uncomfortable. Ultimately, it was their obedience that got them into the trouble that they got into. It was obedience that accounted for Helen Rosevear's amazing story of persecution during the 60s in Africa. It was obedience that landed Corey Tenboom in Ravensbrook. It was obedience that put the four young missionaries through the rigors of captivity in Sudan. In all these cases, their misery was their own fault. If you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. Your caring, your commitment to biblical living will make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart will never experience. That's the bad part. Here's the better part. Yet we must say that while obedience will bring contrary winds, it will also bring joy. Never climb a mountain and you will never bruise your sins, but you will never stand on its peak exulting in victory in the alpine air. Never play baseball and you will never strike out, but you will never hit a home run either. Never obey Christ and you may miss some of life's contrary winds, but you will also never know the winds of the Holy Spirit in your sails bearing you on in service and power. What do we know about the storms of life? We know a number of things. Here's something else. We know that because we can't see God in the storm or even sometimes in the calm, it doesn't mean he can't see us. After Jesus sent the disciples off, he dismissed the crowd. He went off into the mountain to pray. Remember, that's what he wanted to do originally before the crowds were, we would call them an interruption. Jesus would call them a blessed ministry. Now he would have time to pray there would also be time for the disciples to learn how much they needed to rely on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they would learn that lesson, but they would have to learn that in his absence, not with him there. This time he's not going to be in the boat with them as he was back in Matthew chapter 8. So now Jesus and the disciples were apart. The disciples were about to go through a storm. Jesus was nowhere to be seen. The disciples were still not getting their rest. Remember, they were tired after ministry. Then the feeding of the 5,000 took place. They still hadn't gotten their rest. And it tells us in the text here that they were still maybe three or four miles from where they started from. They were making headway painfully. The sea became rough. They were beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. Jesus was not visibly present. Yet somehow Jesus knew that his friends needed his help. He always does. What we know about storms in our lives and what we know about God's power versus the power of a storm We see that in verses 25, 26, 27. When the storm came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. Jesus came to his men, it says, on the fourth watch of the night. Watches didn't have the long-lasting batteries back then. The Energizer Bunny hadn't even been born. But No, I'm sorry, that's not what the fourth watch means. The fourth watch means between 3 and 6 a.m., Remember, this is a tired group of individuals. It's between 3 and 6 a.m., and there they are in the middle of that mess. This was no sudden lake storm, such as the one we saw back in Matthew chapter 8, if you recall, when Jesus was with the disciples in the boat and he was asleep and they awakened him and they were just as frightened at that particular time. Not the same kind of storm. This was a tiring, continuous headwind that required back-breaking rowing. They'd already been rowing at this time, it's estimated, between seven and nine hours. And they were only halfway, roughly, to their destination. Keep that in mind. Seven to nine hours, and they were only halfway to where they were headed. It was at that time that Jesus came to them walking on the water. That was miracle number one in what is about to happen. As I mentioned before, there will be two more. Were they glad to see Jesus? Were they glad to see him? No, not at all. They were terrified to see him. They wouldn't be glad to see him until later. They thought he was some kind of a ghost. It says they cried out in fear. Now remember what happened back in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to turn to Matthew 8, I'm going to read several verses, five verses from Matthew chapter 8. At the first time, Jesus performed a similar miracle in the storm. Here's what happened in Matthew chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And remember, here they are again, being led into a storm. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, why did he say, O you of little faith? Because they should have realized he was there. He wasn't wasn't anywhere else but with them. This was Jesus. They had seen all the great things he had done already. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? 
So they're learning, they're growing. Matthew 8, six chapters later, they're in the middle of another storm. They've seen more and more of what Jesus has done. They've heard more of what he's taught. What we know about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ should help us to avoid fear and terror when the storms come. What we know about the love of the Lord Jesus and his care for his children should help take away the anxiety of the harshest storm. So here are the disciples again. Notice how the word immediately appears in verse 27. Jesus did not leave them in terror and confusion for long. Immediately he came to them and he spoke those words of comfort that we've seen already. Take heart, have courage. It is I, do not be afraid. You've heard me say this next expression many, many, many times over the years, especially at Christmas time when it seems as many of the passages have this in it. No fear, God with us. Two thoughts that pal around with each other. When you see one, you usually see the other one not too far away. When the Scripture tell us, don't be afraid, and then it says, because God is with us. And that's the situation that is going on right here that the Lord Jesus is saying that as well. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So back in Matthew 8, when Jesus was in the boat, was different than this because this time he couldn't be seen. This is a further test. Before Jesus was right there, they didn't have a whole lot of faith. Jesus was there. Jesus could take care of anything, but they still didn't know that experientially. Now, as far as the disciples knew, Jesus was on land, but they underestimated him. You know what it says in Mark 6, verse 48, first part of that verse? And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He saw. How did he do that? They were three to four miles away. It was at night. There was a storm going on. It's possible that he could have seen them with literal eyes, but I don't think that's necessary. The Lord Jesus knew. The Lord Jesus saw what was going on with them. He watches us when we struggle, and he comes to our aid. We may not see him, but he sees us all the time. We struggle, and he's ready to come to our aid. So I ask you an introspective question once again. Are you facing troubled waters? Are you in them right now? Is it very uncomfortable? This scripture says take comfort. You're not alone. The all-seeing eyes are watching, even seeing into the darkest recesses of your life and circumstances. He saw and he came to their aid. Now, one other thing we need to know. We need to know what Jesus does when faith falters. Here we have that little story of Peter. Little story, Peter wanted to be absolutely sure the alleged apparition was really the Lord Jesus. You know, they thought they saw a ghost. Jesus came and identified himself. Jesus said, it's I. Peter wanted proof that it was Jesus. I don't know how many other people he knew who walked on the water, but he set up a test to try to identify that it was really Jesus. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus did exactly that. Jesus accommodated, accommodated that, and he said, come. First, everything was good. Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. He came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. That's when he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus did that. You notice in verse 31, 
how long Jesus took to do it? There's that word immediately again. He reached out his hand, took hold of him, and he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's wondering when some of these lessons are going to be learned. He's wondering, you saw this in a boat when I was present. Do I have to do an identical miracle for you to not lose or lack or falter in your faith? So once again, the Lord Jesus is asking the question, why did you doubt? Back in Matthew chapter 8, remember he said, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, we haven't gotten that far yet, but Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? They were having another picnic without a lot of food. This was the feeding of the 4,000, not the 5,000. What are you learning, disciples? What are you learning? Because Jesus is continuing to say, little faith. You've got little faith. In Matthew chapter 17, a demon the disciples couldn't handle. They came up to Jesus and they basically asked him, why couldn't, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And he said to them, because of your little faith. So they have little faith repeatedly. They're growing. They're seeing more and more and more. They should be getting maybe some better grades than they're getting in some of these tests. But 2 Timothy chapter 2.13 takes account of the fact that we do falter in our faith from time to time. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So when Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, you little faithful, Peter had little faith. He was admonished for that, but he had enough faith that he got up and walked on that water. He had a little problem at the end, but he did that. But if we're faithless even, then it's not the amount of faith we have, it's the object of that faith. If that faith is in the Lord Jesus, he's not going to let us fall in the water. If we're faithless even, and that's little faith multiplied many times over, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Even a little faith got Peter to walk on the water, but when his faith wavered, the Lord Jesus didn't let him sink. So here comes the second and third miracle. When Jesus and Peter, it says, when they got into the boat... The wind ceased. It had been storming for eight to nine hours. When they got into the boat at exactly that instant, it was all over and calm prevailed. That's, I believe, a second miracle that's taking place here at the same time. Here's a third one. John 6, 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Third miracle. They were halfway across the lake when this happened. It had taken them as much as nine hours to get there. Jesus and Peter got into the boat. All of a sudden, no storm anymore. And all of a sudden, they arrived at their destination. Half the trip took maybe nine hours. The other half took the blink of an eye. That's a third miracle that Jesus performed as these disciples are growing. I like what Charles Stanley says, the focus of faith frees us from fear. The focus of faith. That focus is not the wind and the waves and the storm. That focus is the Lord Jesus himself. When we're focused on him, it frees us from fear. So here's Peter. He's okay. He's walking on the water. Don't take your eyes off of the Lord Jesus. Turn your eyes upon him. We're going to be singing that a little bit later on. 
while we know about storms in our lives, we know about God's power versus the power of a storm, we know that Jesus doesn't go away when our faith falters. What do we do with what we know? Now, if you look at verse 33, verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. What do we do with what we know? First thing is we worship just as they did. We acknowledge what a great God we have. They worshiped, they acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God, not God Jr., but God Himself. And then they still have a lot to learn, as we do. We need to seek understanding. That's what we have to do with what we know. We know, but we don't ever stop growing in that knowledge. We learn more about Jesus. The disciples had not yet arrived in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They were astounded with what had happened. But these are a little maybe uncomfortable words in Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They had a ways to go just yet. They needed to learn some lessons from the loaves and the fish. They needed to learn some lessons about Jesus walking on water and calming storms. They weren't there yet. So our reaction to when we see these great things about Jesus is a reaction of worship, of acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, but to seek understanding and to keep growing. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus really walk on the water? Is that important that he walked on the water? Did he really do it? Is there maybe a natural explanation to what happened? Let me share one with you. And you may be a little bit amused at this. Do you think maybe Jesus just surfed on a patch of ice? Do you think maybe that's what happened? Do you realize that that's something that is propagated? Here's a picture of an individual by the name of Dr. Doron Knopf. He's a, um, he wrote a scientific article back in 2006. It was published in everyone's favorite bedtime reading called the Journal of Paleolimnology. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Journal of Paleolimnology? Not too many of you. Here's his article. It was, Is There a Paleolimnological Explanation for Walking on Water in the Sea of Galilee? This man is an expert in oceanography and limnology, which is the study of bodies of water like lakes and oceans. He and his co-authors speculated in this article that an odd combination of atmospheric conditions may cause rare patches of floating ice in the Sea of Galilee. According to their calculations, the chances of this floating ice phenomenon happening are less than once every thousand years, but these odds didn't deter them from questioning whether Jesus walked on water after all. Perhaps Jesus just surfed a patch of floating ice. I read the article. Um, It it says a lot. It leaves the conclusion up to us. It doesn't say it absolutely had to have happened that way, but it leaves the conclusion. You've got to figure that out, you theologians and you other people. I think that's a little more far-fetched than that the God of the universe can walk on water and did for the purposes that he, he deemed best. So what do we do with what we know? Add to that the stop doubting part. 
even though there are many people who say, that's not rational. How could we have a miracle like that? That doesn't make sense to a thinking person. Stop doubting. We increase our faith by God's Word. We don't let life storms rain on our trust of God. And then no fear, God with us. One more thing. Continuing acts of power go on. In the knowledge of the disciples and the people around, they're going to see Jesus doing more and more things. So when you get to chapter 14, verse 34, 35, and 36, this is when he crossed over, came to land at Gennesaret. People immediately recognized him. All the sick people were being brought to Jesus. They implored him that he might even touch the fringe of their garment, and as many as touched it were made well. It's a continuation of learning more and more about Jesus and trusting him more and more so that our little faith can become greater faith. But ultimately, as long as that faith is in the person of the Lord Jesus, it's well-founded. So these are the continuing acts of power that we find here. The question is, who is like Jesus? Who is possibly like him? And I would suggest strongly, don't go into a storm without him. Don't stay in the calm without him. Can Jesus help you through or out of your troubled waters? Is there a need for you to be bent out of shape, hung up, uptight, jammed up over what's going on right now? There's no need at all. You can either believe Jesus or not believe him. The choice continues to be ours. Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you or forsake you, he said. We have a choice. We believe that or not. Matthew 1.23, Emmanuel, God with us. No fear, God with us. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 23.4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? For you are with me. No fear, God, with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Fear is one of our greatest adversaries. It's paralyzing. Ruins our testimony. It robs our joy. Keeps us from important service. Listen real carefully. Over the storm right now, do you hear the voice? It's actually shouting over it. Do you hear it? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Who said that? Heavenly Father, may we live as if we really believe that because we do. But sometimes we need to trust and grow in that trust and grow in our faith, never doubting the reality, the object of that faith. But help us to live in such a way that we're free from the stigma that fear brings. We thank you for this now and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.